As I said, 11 minutes past 9 o'clock, you're on Talk at 9. Professor Francois Fenter is on the line, Senior Member of the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee. Good evening to you, Prof, and thank you for joining us. How's it, everyone? Great stuff. Prof, it felt like, um, I was saying now uh, to, to everyone listening, that it felt like it was just yesterday when I was sitting here and talking to the spokesperson of the Department of Health of uh, Dr. Zuelim Kize himself, and... Um, uh, you know, basically saying that, look, we don't have COVID-19 in the country. We were still talking from the perspective that let's hope we keep it out. A hundred days since our first um, a positive case, we, yeah, where we have innumerable cases of COVID-19 in the country. Um, we had stage three. And, um, well, people are getting quite frustrated, both with the disease as well as the difficulties that it has caused. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been a roller coaster, I think. And and to give a government a little bit of its due, I don't think anyone could have predicted this or got this right. You know, in in totality, it's been we really are in unprecedented um, scientific um, uh, space. No, indeed. I mean, it's it's look, and ultimately, I think that government has tried to make uh, the correct decision as far as possible in in trying to contain this, especially taking into account that we have. Um, uh, you know, a health system that's already under strain, uh, you know, for all kinds of other reasons. And uh, they they had to do the best that they possibly could under these particular circumstances. But where are we now, um, you know, 100 days plus since uh, that first COVID-19 case? Where are we now and where should we be heading? Ultimately, I guess, is the question, isn't it, Prof? So I agree. And I think it's, it's a complex set of decisions also because, you know, the way the epidemics transitioned across the world has been quite uneven. Um, Cape Town is being hammered at the moment, and, you know, it looks like Joburg and, and Gauteng in generally is going to, it's right up next. Um, and I think that there are some telling signs that we are not different from the rest of the world um, that in most cases, so that we are in for a torrid time. I, I think what frightens me a little bit at the moment um, is that, a lot of, you know, we embroiled in all this tussling and this, you know, these legal cases and this fighting about what's appropriate and what isn't. Mm. Um, I kind of feel that it's distracting us because what's the worst is really yet to come. You know, the, we're really at the front end of the epidemic. Cape Town's starting to see the worst of it, but the rest of the country, it's only just started. And the rest of the country, you know, places like Joburg are several times bigger than Cape Town. So it's, it's scary times at the moment where I feel like we're almost being distracted from the stuff we should be paying attention to instead of sitting in the courts fighting about cigarettes. Very true. I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm looking at the, the, the numbers here via Google because I'm not seeing anything on the news screens at this stage in terms of latest updates. So uh, this might be 24 hours out of date. But nonetheless, uh, I see that they are confirmed. In terms of confirmed cases, we have 65,736 uh, 36,850 recoveries and then 1,423 deaths. I see that um, it increased by 3,809 from the previous 24 hours. Gauteng sitting at 7,953, which is quite hectic, but the Western Cape is far more worrisome because it uh, has more than half of all the COVID-19 cases in this country. Um, at 37,422. And from what I understand, we, we're facing a situation whereby 
Unfortunately, it's affecting people largely in, in poorer communities, like in townships, like in informal settlements, particularly in the Western Cape. I mean, this thing is really quite scary, but looking at our death rate, it's seemingly sitting at about the 2% um, mark. Um, I guess there is, um, you know, some cause for relief, if anything at all. Look, I'm maybe a little bit more nervous than you are. Um, I think for the testing stuff, uh, people need to understand that there's terrible biases in there. It depends who you're testing, how you're testing. In many ways, the Western Cape has possibly the strongest, it does have the strongest healthcare system and possibly the best coordinated response in amongst the provinces. So it's quite difficult to... Um, to work out from the testing rates and the positivity rates. I would urge your listeners not to spend too much time looking at those until we build a more coherent testing strategy. The hospitalizations and the deaths are the hardcore data. That's where you're seeing, those are the early indicators, those are the kind of indicators I certainly cast my eye over um, all the time. The death rates are kind of in the same realm as everybody else's, although there seems to be a disparity between the Eastern Cape and the Western Cape where it seems to be worse in the Eastern Cape. Mm. And that might be because people are coming too slow or that... The health system just isn't as strong. They're not getting the support that they need. So I think in many ways we need to look at the hardcore evidence, and that is certainly the deaths and the the hospitalizations. That's stuff you can rely upon. The testing data I'm much more loath to to describe too much um, stuff to. Let's talk about that a little bit because obviously there's a very strong statement that's coming out from from yourself um, around this particular issue with regards to mass testing and where we're at with the mass testing. Now, before we get into that, let's just take a step back and understand from your side, why is it that you feel that that data, uh, you know, and and I won't lie to you, I was one of those people that on a day-to-day basis, almost on an hourly basis, I would check in with the news to see what has been the latest increase, if any. Um, And then there was pure paranoia. But why is it that we should pay less attention to that level of paranoia and think otherwise, you know, differently uh, when it comes to to these particular test results? So so testing is just a thorny issue. It's who you test. You know, it's all about if you go into a hospital, for instance, and you test you're going to find much higher positivity rates. If you go into the community and you so much just test anyone who's walking down the street, you're going to find much lower positivity rates. And we don't have a good clarity on who the testing is happening amongst. Um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's really frustrating at the moment because it's an expensive test, you know, and we should be using those tests uh, much more Coherently, and that's obviously a lot of what I've been talking about in the media is just a better testing strategy, um, is, is what, is what's required. So even, you know, things like positivity rates, numbers of tests performed, all those things are very difficult to interpret unless you know exactly who you, which testing population you're going into. What I found interesting about that is, you know, I was thinking to myself that let's say, for example, I get the, which hasn't happened yet, but, uh, someone pitches up or, you know, at my gate, um, you know, with a test kit, et cetera, et cetera, and, and goes ahead and tests me and my family. And, um, you know, the results come back positive or negative, or in this instance, negative. Um, the, the question that I always had is what happens the next day when I go pop off to the local uh, supermarket and, you know, come into contact with someone unbeknownst to me and then pick up the illness at that particular stage? I mean, is that one of the key concerns, one of the key, I don't know, issues that we need to take into account that you're not necessarily going to be able to pick it up at the time that you need to pick it up if you just go about sort of some form of uh, 
just uh, you know random testing for lack of a better term. No, that's that's perfectly put, and it's one of the biggest frustrations with the understandings of this test. Is and the thing about this test is, you know, if it comes back positive, the PCR test we're talking about now, which is the one we're commonly using across the country, if it comes back positive, you almost certainly got it. You know, and mm-hmm. you're infectious, and you should get behind closed doors and look after yourself and keep people around you safe. If it comes back negative, there's only about a 60% chance that that actually is true if you're positive. So lots of people are positive, and the test comes back negative. It's not a great test for, for picking it up. And that's why I think in many ways, um, you know, employers insisting on a negative test before you can come back to work, for instance, that makes absolutely no sense. Sports stars going out and testing, you know, you can be negative. The other thing is you can be negative, as you said, today, and you can be positive tomorrow. So you can, you know, if you really want to be absolutely silly about this whole thing, you could swab yourself every six hours and still you could infect somebody and be positive without the test coming back positive. So people need to understand the limitations of this test are quite severe which is why you have to use it very intelligently. And I'm afraid South Africa certainly hasn't been. So, I mean, going forward, what, what should be our approach to testing now, especially based on the fact that there is, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, Prof, uh, some concern, some, some paranoia, especially when we are looking at that upward and, and rapidly upward moving um, uh, graph in terms of the current infections that we see in the country at the moment. How do we then deal with this particular issue? So you can do plenty. You know. The thing about it is I think we've distracted ourselves somewhat with this very expensive fraud test. Um, there's plenty we can do. As I said, you know, we can look at hospitalizations, you can, um, you can kind of look at um, death rates, you can see which places where it's going up. And those things are actually being done in South Africa, and we're actually getting far more useful data from that than we are from the testing programs. Um, you can also, in terms of interventions, I think everyone thinks that the tests are some magical way of you know, risk stratifying yourself in and out. It really isn't. If you're symptomatic, uh, you know, as I said earlier, you, you often will have a test and will come back negative, even though you actually do have it. It's really important that people need to understand that testing can give you really false reassurance um, that you're negative. If you're symptomatic, if you have the sort of symptoms of flu, mm. you really need to get yourself into behind closed doors, just get yourself away from people, look after yourself, do the responsible thing. We, one of the things, you know, I think for your listeners, you need to understand how unbelievably frustrating this is for me and other people involved in public health is because we're having to learn this on the fly. You know, we, we're so much smarter than we were three months ago. Mm-hmm. But we still don't know a hang of a lot about this virus. But some of the big things that I've certainly become aware of is the single most important thing you can do, way beyond anything else, is actually the social distancing thing, the physical distancing, staying away from crowds, staying away from places where you're congregating close together. Now, rushing into the supermarket, like you were talking about yesterday, um, earlier, and, and rushing out is probably mm-hmm. incredibly low risk if you're wearing a mask. Um, going to church and singing loudly next to a whole of congregants where, you, where you're close together, that's incredibly high risk. So trying to, going into a household where somebody's sick and, and you know, in winter, closing all the windows and sitting inside together is very, very high risk. So it's, these things, there's nothing that's completely safe other than shutting behind your door and not talking to anyone. But you can risk stratify yourself out of the thing. So this physical distancing is really important. I think the thing that really took me by surprise is how important masks are. You know, the more research we do, the more it seems like masks are possibly the second most important thing we could do. And then the stuff we all know about, the hand washing, mm-hmm. you know, is, is very important. So for people to understand, you know, to start looking at how do they engage with the society? 
um, is, is really important. I think the language of lockdown has actually really hurt us in South Africa because we get so obsessed with you know, level four, level three, level two, whatever it is. But what we should be talking about is how do we mix people in a way that is as safe as humanly possible without shutting the society down completely? I mean, that for me is absolutely fascinating, but uh, there's obviously still a need for testing, um, and, and, and especially at this time of the year, as I'm sure you would agree with me, Prof, because this is especially yeah. flu season. This is when uh, you pick up that, and, and I won't lie to you, lately I've been very paranoid. I mean, just uh, yesterday I was busy, uh, you know, uh, with some stuff which led to some dust, which led to, uh, you know, a bit of, uh, not sinusitis per se, but you know when your sin- sinuses are, a little irritated and you you know you have that <clears throat> and and every single time that happens i won't lie to you i get a bit nervous and you get a bit paranoid and you you know you know you're slightly worried about what is actually going on what is the situation so it's that time of the year where people are going to be, have symptoms very similar to COVID-19 or what we know COVID-19 symptoms to be, there's going to be all kinds of paranoia anyway because people don't want to specifically get COVID-19, forgetting that there's still the flu and the, the common cold, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where then do we place testing within that particular construct where there is going to be an uptick with, with people getting ill, uh, getting symptomatic in some form or shape and wanting to know what the heck is going on? So I think... Um that's a good question because it talks to priority of testing, though. So if we've exactly. got a thousand tests, you know, we have to think very hard. Who do we test? You know, who's the most important person to test? Now, you've got a sore throat. It would be really nice to know that we could test you and say you're definitely positive. Listen, dude, go home, you know, get behind yeah. the closed doors. Yeah, as I said earlier, if it comes back negative, it's not a great test. It doesn't um, really reassure you, but it's better than nothing. The problem we have is that you know, where we absolutely need the test um, is in the hospital services. And we need those tests to come back quickly because what's happening at the moment is all the hospitals, including places like Fertiski um, and the Gen and other large central hospitals in the, in the cities, are, um, are over, uh, they've got all these big quarantine wards, but they can't get the results on the patient. So you've got somebody there who's sick, who's got pneumonia. You want to know they've got COVID, so you can put them in a special ward, um, away from everyone, where you can really, really go to town on the, the personal protective stuff. And you don't want them anywhere near other people. And what's happening there is we're waiting for several weeks, um, in some cases, about at least a couple of days, where these mm. people are sitting in these little wards under pseudo-quarantine because, you know, just, there's so many of them. Um, and we need to start prioritizing those hospitalized patients. Then the next group is all these healthcare workers who are getting sick. You know, we need to try and send them back to work as quick as possible and try and, uh, by all means necessary, to try and ascertain do they have the virus or don't they. So they're not infecting their patients. And so, again, we need to be able to prioritize them. Then the next group of people is like severely sick people presenting at the clinics and things um, need to be, you know, pushed to the front of the queue in terms of getting, um, of getting their test results. The last people are the people like, who've got a sore throat, who present into the GP or coming into the clinic, you know, for those people, if you, as I said, they're nice to have. That's the sad reality. They can go and self-isolate for 14 days. You know, so this is the, the thing about it is that we need to, we've got a ration um, resource that we need to use as intelligently as possible. And at the moment, government is testing people who don't have symptoms. You know, as I said earlier, um, testing sporting people seems an absolutely catastrophic waste of money. 
No, that for me is is. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting point that we've reached when it comes to COVID nineteen and in the situation that we've reached. There's two more issues that I want to explore with you, Prof. First and foremost, um, you know, in in terms of moving forward, is government listening to you as the you know as, as the advisory committee? Because we do know, I think it's well documented that not always has government been uh, immediately responsive. So you're not government yourself. You're not telling government what to do. You you present your um, your idea. Ideas, you present your suggestions and it's up to government then to decide to implement. Are they implementing in this particular instance? So I, I'm down by a confidentiality agreement within the MAC, but I can tell you that is how it works, is we present advisories to governments and then it's up to them to take them or to leave them. Um, you know, we obviously have opinions outside of the, the MAC um, and you know, those we haven't been stopped from airing it, um, to be clear. Mm. So... Yes, I think that that in, in summary is true, is that we are, um, the MAC itself is an advisory group, and uh, outside of that, we have opinions. And I think, as you've alluded to, my opinions are that the, the, certainly the testing program that they've got out there, it doesn't make sense at all. And just as a final one, I mean, Prof, this is a, a concern for me. I mean, we have COVID-19. We know that this thing has... Um, you know, it's part of the coronavirus family. We've had SARS, we've had MERS before. It's a, it's, it's sort of my, one of my perpetual questions. What happens after this? I mean, you know, uh, SARS and MERS, you know, SARS came with 750 deaths. MERS came with a, about double that amount. Um, and, and, you know, there was some panic. And then, we, you know, there's been a couple of iterations in between that. But then suddenly we got hit by COVID-19. What happens next? What is the situation? Is this a learning opportunity for us to prevent things from getting this bad again? Or can things potentially get worse? Things can get a lot worse, make no mistake. Um, it's, it's an interesting uh, situation we have at the moment because we, we are... Um, kind of learning as we're going along, there is the possibility that this virus is going to be like flu. It's going to come in every year. Um, that, you know, it's going to hammer us in the way that flu does. You know, that I, I think it's, it's very important for your listeners to understand is that this is not flu at the moment. It's, it's probably going to kill more people than any other infectious disease in, um, um, in uh, this year. And I think for that reason, we need to take it very, very seriously. There are multiple options here. We might all get immune very, very quickly and it disappears like, um, you know, like some of the other coronaviruses did, like you said, the, the original SARS did. Mm. It might just grumble along. It might peak and then come back for a second peak like the Spanish flu did, which killed far more. South Africa, South Africa was actually one of the worst hit countries in the world in the 1918 flu. So... For all those reasons, we're in this terribly frustrating situation where we don't know what's coming. And, and for me personally, I find it, and I think for most of South Africa, this not knowing what the new normal is going to be is incredibly stressful. You know, is that we don't mm. know whether we're going to be bunkering down like this for the rest of the time. I do think you're right, though. There's some stuff that's not going to change. I think that we are going to be washing our hands. We're going to be wearing masks. We're going to be social distancing. Our gyms are going to be a different format. Our shopping centers are going to be in a different format. All of our world is going to be different from the way it was, um, you know, four months ago. And I think we need to anticipate that this is keeping each other safe. This is going to be the, the cost. We have to work out creatively how, as a society, we're going to be able to deal with these things. And I think the other, some of this stuff is good. You know, it's, it's revolting that we still have 
informal settlements are so overcrowded. It's mm. bad that you know, clinics were not screening people with TB symptoms 10 years ago. This is a time to learn to start improving the systems and to start making each other as safe as possible. It is going to be frustrating, though, and it is going to be a learning process as we go along, and it's going to require quite a lot of social engineering. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a scary time for all of us at this mm-hmm. stage, but people are going to have to be patient with each other, and there are going to be serious missteps, and government certainly made some serious ones in my view. But we also need to be quite forgiving about that and start thinking creatively as to how we can you know, come up with stuff that is going to mean that we can live normally over the next 30 or 40 years, if differently. All the best to you, Prof. Thank you for, for engaging this conversation with us. I mean, it's extremely important. And, and I mean, as you said, uh, I think part of that is taking us on this journey of what's going to happen next. What is the new normal, as everyone is talking about? All the best to you. Yeah. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you. There was uh, Professor Francois um, Fenter. Uh, as I said, he's a senior member of the Ministerial Advisory Committee uh, on COVID-19. Now,